than being reminded particularly of them and celebrated of them on uh, once a year. So, um, and I also realized that every time we hit Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, many of you I, I, I talk to during the week, there's just a, a varying degree of complexities, feelings, experiences that, that rise to the surface. So um, I also realize, too, that there are many things that you might think and feel uh, on days like today that are not anything but happy and joyful. Maybe you've got nobody who's celebrating you and writing Facebook posts about you and sending you cards and, and giving you gifts. And uh, we always want to be pointed to the one who reflects fatherhood perfectly, which is God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So uh, we constantly want you to be leaned into that, to see that and know that um, we have no hope whatsoever at doing anything and being anything apart from his great grace and work. So um, every time you see the fracture and, the, and basically the, the subtleness of futility maybe in the, even the nature of the family, we want you to see that, that we believe as we worship here that God is a good, gracious Father who is the only one who is perfect in his fatherhood, that he enacts discipline and grace and compassion and love and mercy in ways that are absolutely, infinitely perfect to us as his kids. So those of us who are adopted sons and daughters into the blood-bought kingdom and family of God, well, we, we rejoice in that we have a father who's perfect, right? So every time we might remember, uh, even maybe in our past growing up, pictures or feelings of our own dads that were imperfect, uh, they were supposed to be imperfect so that we would see the one who is and long for him more than even our earthly father and mother. Um, and so that's why we rejoice in that. But I do want to take just a moment to pray for um, the dads in the room because God has given us a unique and weighty responsibility. Every time I walk through preparing for marriage counseling with a couple and we talk about roles, and, and I think one of the biggest surprises people uh, come across is when I'm like, yeah, the Bible's anything but chauvinistic. So no culture's going to say that, say that we hate women and we don't. Well, if you look at the role, the, the job description of the man, um, I don't think anyone wants that. So um, we got the weight of responsibility that God will say, you're accountable ultimately for if family. You're the one who is ultimately going to uh, be addressed when spiritual issues arise. So we, we feel the weight of that. We feel the, uh, the complexity of that, the conviction of that. So um, for you ladies in the room, praise God, man. Flourish in your lane, okay? Love submitting well to a man who enables you to flourish well under his headship. But um, I just want to pray for the dads in the room. Some of you guys, there's a varying degrees of that. You might be a spiritual father or a spiritual son. Um, you might be a soon-to-be father, and uh, so I just want to pray for you. So if, if, if you're a spouse of that husband and you're near them or a son or daughter to that uh, father, if you might just lay your hand on them, I'm going to pray for them and that God might continue to grow up in this place. Men who are strong, courageous, love Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and are passionate about the things that God is passionate about. So let's do that together. God, thank you um, that we get to see your unique, perfect wiring in the ways that you've created humanity and the ways that you've made the family. God, we see that in husband and wife, sons and daughters, children. But God, particularly to a day like today, we're reminded of um, fatherhood and you being the great good father. Might, we, might you help us as dads? God, as we are, I'm sure, hopefully, keenly aware of our frailty and inability apart from the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you help us to shepherd our homes. I pray our families would flourish under us, that our homes would be a place of refuge and peace and joy and leaning into deeper meaning and life because we're there. Father, would you convict and challenge us where we need to be more like our Father in heaven. Father, would you help us now? Would you help people this morning who um, are are greatly aware of um, absentee fathers and remind us that you're a father who is always present. God, I'm aware also of single moms that are doing the job of dad as best as they're able. 
Would you equip them today and strengthen them and empower them to do every last good work that you have designed and wired them to do for your glory and for their joy? God, would you continue in your church across this world to raise up men who love you and are deeply committed to your truth and what you say, that they would be courageous and stand in the gap when no one else will stand in the gap, who will speak the truth and no one else will speak the truth, who will hold unwaveringly to the good, great news of your gospel of grace. Father, help us. And God, as we study your word, help us and illuminate our minds where we need illumination. Father, thank you that we can come together and be together as the family of God. It's great joy. It's privilege. And Father, we rejoice that we get to sit in a place that's free. We can hear from you. Lead us. Speak to us. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles. We're in Ecclesiastes. If you're visiting or dropping in Ecclesiastes, this is in the uh, wisdom portion of your, of your Bible. So we're in Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 today. It's been a phenomenal study. And Ecclesiastes is much more philosophical than like Luke. I know we were in the Gospel of Luke for two years, and you guys were like, Luke was so simple and kind of chronological and easy. Hey, Jesus did this. He did this. He did this. Uh, see Jesus. And here we are kind of going, okay, well, uh, there's a lot of philosophies of life, um, ways that people view meaning of life and value in life and work in life. And so Solomon, the wealthiest, smartest, most wise man who ever lived is going to say, hey, sit on grandpa's lap and listen as I kind of lay before you the realities of, hey, this is actually how meaning is found. This is actually how life is found. This is actually how um, depth and purpose and all that you see under the sun is found. If you come from nowhere and are headed to nowhere, then life is totally, utterly meaningless. And he's got a thesis that he believes is absolutely irrefutable. And so he's been kind of walking us through in this book how you have to see the God who reigns over the Son, who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come under the sun and save us from the futility that is this fractured universe we live in that's filled with sin and brokenness. And so um, the ways you deal with despair, the ways you deal with hope, the ways you deal with joy, the ways you deal with suffering um, have to all be tied to that. If you don't have the God of the Scriptures who spoke into human history, who reveals Himself not just through speculation or revelation, then you have no placement for your basis of rationality or meaning or value. And so we've been seeing that from Solomon. It's been a really uh, soul-stirring study. It's been awesome, and I've been loving just even the emails that, that I've been receiving as we've been walking through and dialoguing in, in, in greater depth. Um, what does this mean, and what does this, how does this play out for me? And uh, even some of you asking things about salvation, and it's great that you're not getting the cart ahead of the horse. Um, you're going, okay, to be led by God and fueled by his spirit, um, there's acknowledgement of sin that has to happen, and his holiness that has to happen, and uh, judgment that has to be realized. And so it's been phenomenal to see that. So uh, Ecclesiastes is the book. Remember, I tell you all the time, if you miss his method, you miss his whole message. So he's not here to answer all your questions or tell you the truth. He's trying to lay before you questions that ultimately, ultimately lead you to the truth, and that's what we've been doing together. And so he's not really a preacher. A preacher is somebody who, who takes the Word of God and takes the text and says, hey, this is how we extract from that and see God. What is he saying? A teacher or a philosopher like he is is someone who says, hey, I'm thinking about these things. Let me lay these things before you and let you dialogue and think rightly about them. So don't look at this as as actually a preacher preaching to you in Solomon. He's laying before you questions and trying to let me, unfortunately, the preacher, do the job of communicating God's truth to you. So that's what he's trying to get after here. So um, he's basically saying, if you look at life and you look at nature and you look at toil, you look at your work, you look at your family, if you look at everything under the sun, there has to be something over the sun to make all this stuff make sense and give you meaning and purpose.
purpose. That's why he's primarily addressing the problem of meaning. He's relentlessly, relentlessly getting at you with these questions that make you kind of ask the questions that you don't want to ask when you come home. You'd rather get on your lazy boy and watch Fox 5 News so, or CNN, whatever. So some of you guys hate Fox. So you think it's ultra conservative, but that's another uh, subject. So here you've got this, this idea where we kind of um, tune out ourselves. We get in our lazy boy. We don't want to think about anything or hear anything that truly gets at the soul-wrenching thoughts of our hearts. But he does it. Solomon's not afraid to do that. So he says, hey, is life a waste? What's the meaning of your toil? What's the meaning of justice? What's the meaning of suffering? What's the meaning of any of these things? And he's doing a great job at kind of pestering us to get us to realize what is the truth. Now, I want you to understand something else about Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes um, functions much less like a meal and more like a bath. Okay, so, so it's not like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this meaty theological, even though it is theological, I'm not, I'm not reading this book where I just feel full. It's actually more like a bath where he is trying to scrub off of you sentiments and feelings that are illusions to drive you to the truth. Okay, so as you read Ecclesiastes, try to look at it as, man, Solomon's getting us all in the tank, and he's trying to just scrub off of us the, thing, the ways we think wrongly, feel wrongly, and discern wrongly so that we might discern, feel, and think rightly which would ultimately lead us to the truth that God has given us. So um, where Solomon goes this morning is a bit interesting, and I feel like every couple verses you kind of get him heading a direction. We're like, that's a little odd. He kind of heads a direction that I wasn't, I wasn't expecting there. But this morning he's, he's getting out more of the practicalities of life, and if these things are really bearing weight on you, what they mean for you. And so here where he's going is if, if you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're headed to. Now the Christian knows we come from God, ultimately headed to God, so there's deep, profound meaning here. He shows us that if you don't know any of those things, then the here and now is meaningless, which will lead to an insatiable desire to just accumulate because all you have for you is the here and now to find worth, value, and identity. And so you're going to do everything you can to accumulate for yourself, which inevitably will birth discontentment in you because this stuff God gave will never bring about the satisfaction God gives, and so you'll start coveting your neighbor, which leads to envy and strife. That's what he's going to show us, which ultimately will dismantle God's design in saving a people, not just individuals. Okay, that's, that's the long train of thought we're going to see from Solomon this morning. So verse 4, here's what he says, chapter 4. If you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen if you don't have one. This is what Solomon says. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. He's saying if all you have, like if everything you see, literally us right now when you walk through these doors, the creation, your, your job you're going to go to tomorrow, the family that you have, the brick house you live in, the cement sidewalks you walk on, the nice comfortable stuff that gives you that weird thrill of ease and comfort and validation that you buy, if that's all you have, if the meaning is solely tied in that, if it terminates in all of those things, he says it's a striving after the wind. And he says further, a majority of that is you driven by this identity crisis because you're searching for meaning with the here and now. So everything you lay your eyes on, you're saying, how can that validate me? How can that marriage validate me? How can that relationship validate me? How can that thing I could possess validate me? How could that job I jump into somehow validate me? That's where he's moving your heart. So he says something that's, that's pretty convicting if you're honest and willing to receive it humbly. He says basically here, um, those clothes you're wearing right now, me too probably, I guess, uh, if, if you're honest, are not just so that you could need them or have them, but someone could see you in them and envy you for them. 
Um, that, that car we purchase uh, is ultimately not usually about what we really need, but more so who can see us in that car. It's so that we can be seen, so our status can grow, so approval and identity can be found in how people now see us based upon what we buy. And we said last week and the week before, we don't own, we don't own possessions. Possessions totally own you. Right? We don't buy because we need. We buy because we want our status to change. We start coveting. We start envying. And here he's just unrolling why we do certain things. Now, here's why we do that. Um, because the driving force in the human heart, right, is to be the center of the universe, right? I mean, all of us want to be the center of attention, the center of the universe, do great things. Now, it's not wrong to want to do great things. It is wrong to want to do great things if it's not tied to ultimately serving God and his purposes and giving him the right authority and glory for it all, right? So here you have this, this weird state we live in. If we're not tied to God, to the people of God, redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ, then we live lives in such a way that are like, man, I'm going to chase everything, strive after it like it's the wind, really, because it's never really going to gain for me any meaningful value if I'm not tied to God, the maker of it all, and you're going to find yourself in this rat races cul-de-sac that always leaves you wanting. That's what he's trying to get us to see. We want to be the center of the universe. We don't want to walk as God intended and built us to walk. Now, interestingly, he says, you striving for your fulfillment in worth, identity, in your work is ultimately bound up in the envy of the next guy. It's, it's hard for us to rejoice with others. It really is. And, and I think we'd be lying if we didn't say that many of us, if not all of us, get some sick rejoicing in the failures of others. Right? There's this thing webbed into the fractured human heart that's filled with sin that says, I have to one-up the next guy. I have to have this because this has this, or this friendship or this family we know has this, so how do I look better or feel more validated than them? Right? It's just the circle of the American dream that we live in, and he's, he's pushing this into us. He's getting us to think about this more realistically. Our zip code, cars, possessions, technology, they're all status symbols, right? I mean, in Bergen County, come on, I live here, I live here. You even just go out. I, I go to a coffee shop in Ridgewood a lot to write, and I mean, I just people watch and listen, and it's insane. I get to form theologies just sitting in the coffee shop. Right? I mean, it's just like everyone in there is going, yeah, well, I live in this house, and this is the car I got. This is where my kid's going to school. Hey, here's where he got into college. This is the grade he got in college. This is the job. He's, oh, your kid's not has a job yet. He must be a failure. And you're just going around and around. Just all of you just doing the status symbols of life, trying to envy the next man and get more next man. So listen, us living where we live outside the New York City metropolitan area, we are f so firmly and keenly aware of this, are we not? I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, you should be reading Solomon going, yeah, that, that's true. Even if it bothers you a little bit, even if you want to run and hide from this, you have to say this is absolutely true of me and my heart. So if we have a better appearance or have a more attractive spouse or have more picture-perfect kids or have a better landscaped yard, we think those things ultimately in some way give us accomplishment and they value you, right? So here's what Solomon is saying. A life unattached to God must seek meaning somewhere, right? 
It has to. Like, like you were actually designed to worship, designed to long for something bigger than yourself, and you weren't designed to long for it in this stuff that God made. You were designed to long for it in the God who made them. So if you just chase his stuff and don't chase him, you're constantly going to fall into this rat race that we've been talking about for 16 weeks. Right, of chasing the wind. It's, we said it's as silly as a guy who said, hey, come over and check out my wind collection. I got strong wind, light wind, rafty wind, circular wind. You'd be like, what are you talking about? You can't actually have those things. You can't collect those things. You're chasing the unicorn. And yet we do that with our lives. We do that with satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment. And so he says, when our souls are not found and wrapped up in the creator who made us, you grow discontent. And listen, when you're discontent, you covet. So, so every time, so every time your heart gets more discontented, you grow in covetousness. Now, it's amazing because we don't really take that seriously, <laughs> right? Even though Colossians will say greed is idolatry, so you have a greed issue, you have a God issue. So if you covet, you actually have an issue with God being the satisfying portion of your soul. You have a wrong view of God and who he is to you and how good he is for you. Now, here's why this is so dangerous, um, if you're coveting something, right, if you're lusting for something, if you're obsessing for something, if there's that thing that you sit in your recliner at the end of the day and go, I just have to have that or do that or be a part of this. If I have X, Y, Z, then all of my life chips will fall in line, right? Whatever that thing is, is ultimately, this is the betrayal of coveting. It's really enslavement. So you put your hands out for that thing and the shackles of it lock on your wrist and you're more enslaved than free now because that thing owns your dollars, your days, your mind, your anxieties, your feelings, everything is driven by that. So all of a sudden, you are locked in the shackle of covetousness and all those things that you once wanted that you thought would free you and bring about peace, you're more stressed and depressed than before. And so Solomon is trying to push us to see that this is not the right way to live. This is not how God designed us. The betrayal of covenant is it ends up in slavery. Now, all you guys, any of you guys know this, the thing that you've chased that you thought would bring about meaning that is not God, that is not his good gifts and works, right? All those things outside of him that you've chased, you've seen ultimately lead to a slaved life. And so God's actually trying to free us from those things. And because we don't take it seriously or see its damning effects, that's why a lot of us grieve. Um, I'd, I'd argue probably most of us um, almost every bit of pain in our life can be traced back to us placing contentment where it was never meant to be placed. Or, or placing joy or placing meaning or placing worth where it was never meant to be placed because where you place your hope is totally and absolutely imperative to your joy. So if you want to grow in joy, it's imperative you know where to place your hope. And this is what Solomon is trying to get you to see. That's why he's been basically in the first two chapters rolling out for us his entire life. If you place your hope in, in cattle and ownership and possessions and work and how much you know and wisdom and how far you get in your company, if that's where you place your meaning and value and identity at the end of the day, like that's not going to get you anywhere because as soon as you know it, the cloud comes over your house and rain pours down, there's thunder and lightning, and you realize that nothing can hold up under those dysfunctional saviors and gods that we make to be gods that we think can be the God who made all things. It's crazy. So he's getting us to see this. He's trying to help us to understand this. This is why a sociologist, if you, if you study sociology and, and, and talk to sociologists, they'll, they'll often say um, this, this phrase, we don't need to buy stuff. Uh, we buy because of the image it projects about us. 
sociologists talk about this all the time. And it's brilliant because it's true. He's just pulling from Ecclesiastes. Right? It's, it's so much fun when you talk to the secular theorist, philosopher, psychiatrist, sociologist, and you talk to him long enough and realize, you realize you're just extracting from the scriptures. No, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Here, let me show you. Ecclesiastes 4. Ah, oh, dang it. You know what I mean? So you, you have to realize that, that all this truth is ultimately God's truth, and he's trying to lead us to the only place where the fullness of truth and life can be found. And so here he, they say these things. It's motivated by envy that says, I should have because I'm more deserving than the next man. That's what comes up in the human heart. Um, someone gets a raise. Someone gets a car. Someone gets a kid. Right? Um, you covet, right? You don't always rejoice with them. And I'm not saying we don't genuinely rejoice with others who rejoice. But I'm saying the natural bent of our heart is not to rejoice. So let me just ask two questions. Um, why do you pursue whatever it is you're pursuing right now? Just simply. There's something for all of us that we're pursuing, right, and really want. And I'm not even saying it's bad stuff. Like, the Scripture's not going to say that, that those certain things, those certain jobs are intrinsically wicked. It will say you and I are intrinsically wicked, all right? So you've got to do the hard work of why am I chasing after that particular thing? Why do I want that particular thing? You'll usually reveal it a lot. Is it so it would provide a better reflection of you? You believe if you were in that job or you had that number dollar or you had that type of friend or you drove this type of car or lived in this neighborhood that ultimately it would be a more positive reflection on you and therefore validate you? Because he says the striving after that is like chasing the wind. It's never enough. The raise is never enough. He says that. It's chasing after the wind. It's like changing a kid's diapers. You change it, it's back again, right? Got to change it again. He says, this is the cycle, right? This is why artists, man, they, they paint paintings, they marvel at it, look at it, and then what do they do? Like a month later, I don't really like it anymore. I got to make something better. This is just the way that we live. This is what's in our hearts. <laughs> you see artists, right? They write songs. Killer, man. Pop chart, topping hit, man, million sold. I got to write another one. That one didn't really have this flair that I wanted. It's amazing how we all live in this type of way. All that energy, effort for not, he's saying, if it's not tied to the only thing that will last for eternity. So remember, work is worthwhile. It's just not to be equated with self-worth. And that's what Solomon's laying before us. Look at 5 and 6 up here. He says, the fool folds his hands, eats his own flesh, or has his hands too full. So the fool, this whole section is on like basically living wisely or living foolishly, right? It's in the wisdom literature, and he's tying it to meaning in God. But he basically says, hey, there's, there's two types of fools. He's either just super selfish or he's just overly indulgent. So he either has his hands closed, doesn't help anybody, doesn't extend grace or receive grace, or he has his hands too full, where he has so much possession, so much going on that he can't do anything for God in his work. He says both are foolish ways to live. Have you ever had so many possessions and things and stuff that your hands are so full that you can't keep up with life, you're more overwhelmed than before, that you bought the house, the landscape you are with the extra cars, the extra garage, you're more busy trying to clean and keep things tidy than before, and it's adding more stress to your life. Or you get a job that thought would be awesome because it paid this innumerable salary, and now you're more anxious and more strung out because of the just rat race and exhaustion it gives you. That's what he's getting at, just being wise, and why do we do what we do? 
Some people just have their hands open because they're just trying to outdo everybody else, right? Because they're selfish or deceived. The thief of comparison, right, robs our souls. That's what he's getting at. I just need to have more, do more, achieve more. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. (laughs) He's just continuing to to lay this before us. Okay, the vanity of life is if you don't come from anywhere and you don't head to anywhere, and the here now is all that you have. If you don't look up and see God in the face of Jesus Christ for your satisfaction, for the one who made and wired things to be, he says, you're either going to just bury yourself in your work or your job and close your fists and close your hands, or you're not going to keep them wide open to the fracture of your broken heart and need for him. You're going to just ignore it. You're going to put on spiritual blinders. You're going to look everywhere else to try to see where to find meaning rather than addressing your fallen heart and the brokenness of this world. He says, so you know what you're going to do? Use extravagance as a dead-end street to suppress your lack of fullness of life. And you're never going to stop and ask yourself, hey, wow, I'm accumulating this, this seemingly full life the culture says is great and it's how you live and you realize at the end of the day you're still left lonely and cold. You know, um, some of the most wealthy, most um, popular men and women are the most lonely. Did you know that? That they feel the deepest ache. Those pop stars that sit and sing, you might think, man, they've got it made when really they are terribly lonely. I read one artist who was talking about concerts, and as they walked out, they saw billions of faces and fans that wanted something from them, but not them. This is just the illusion that we get ourselves into, thinking that this equals worth and value. We have credit cards to spend with the money that we don't even have yet. Decline of leisure continues as productivity rises. Right? He's going, even if you took time to enjoy that which your hands are able to produce, you'd still be empty. Solomon's trying to get us to understand you're built for something more than that. Like, true life is not having, doing, and being this. True life is God seen in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who made us, who saves us, regenerates us, justifies us, makes us new, and then gives us the illuminator of the Holy Spirit to now walk and learn and discern how to live life to the fullest. But it's not the way the culture will say or the book in Barnes and Noble will say. It's the way the scriptures will say and the way that God who lives over the sun will say as he broke into human history and says, you don't have to speculate. I've got revelation for you. You don't have to wonder and use human wisdom. I've got divine wisdom and divine discernment for you. Amazing, because you have to have God say something about himself and deliver it to you to know what that is. The human mind has no capacity to know the things of God. He's transcendent. He's out of this world. He's otherworldly. So how would you and I expect to understand what God says and what God thinks unless he tells us and shows us, and praise God, he has, right, in his revelation of his word, in creation, and most profoundly in the face of his incarnate son. Isn't that awesome? So now we know how to live. Now we know where true joy is found. Now we know why when these things happen, they happen. Because we can line it up to the word and go, oh, that makes sense because this is what he says about that. Or that makes sense because this is why Jesus came for this. 
That's what he's getting us to see. You know, it's funny. I, I, I got this visual of him talking here. Um, we're kind of like that, that person who's just starving. And so you walk out into the, a windy day and you go, and you just think the wind is going to fill you and make you full. Right? I just need more wind to make me full. I'm so hungry, right? He's saying that's the insanity of you believing that you living a life that work and popularity and success and family and all these things will validate you and somehow give you the sense of worth you're looking for. You're like a guy. You're as loony as a guy walking out, opening his mouth, who's starving, thinking the wind will fill him. You need to be filled with Jesus. You need the bread of life. You need the water that never leaves you thirsty again. Bread that never leaves you hungry again. That's where he's trying to push us and get us. Man, this is the pain of the iPhone, right? Right? I mean, you buy an iPhone, iPhone 10 next month, right? This one has a pet robot and a latte dispenser out the camera, right? You're like, you can't win. You can't win. You think you can get ahead in life, and then the Mac and Apple like product just destroys you. And listen, you know what they're doing? They're feeding on Ecclesiastes warning. Absolutely know that. That's why they do all this because they know that you and I are morons and we're going to chase it and want it until the day that we die, realizing we always have to have the next thing because it will never be enough for us. So actually, they're extremely wise in their foolishness. They absolutely are. This is why he says, you can have everything but have no son or no brother, no one to share it with, no community, And that's why Solomon's turning a corner to say God has another plan for surviving this. It is Jesus Christ, but it's also us being a part of a blood-bought citizen kingdom, a family. Amazing that God's not just going to save individuals, he saves a people. So he's going to show us um, there's a better plan that beats folding your arms and saying forget it or just burying your head in work and stuff and believing whatever you have to bury yourself in or get your mind away from the brokenness of this world. He clarifies in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone, and when he falls, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, now many of you guys probably know this just from going to weddings, Right? This is the wedding text, right? Threefold strand. Okay, now, I'm not saying those things aren't true, but let's look at what Solomon's actually saying here. So he's, he's giving you this, this realization of meaning and life cannot be found in these things. It's chasing after the wind to try to want stuff that cannot do for you what it was never designed to do. So he writes and shows us in the middle of all this, in the human soul, God's wired us in such a way, in a deep way, that profound fullness of life is found not just in Christ and God saving us, but in giving us other saints to walk with. That meaning of life is not just given from the God over the sun, but his people who live under the sun. I mean, godly saints are a refuge, aren't they? I mean, godly brothers and sisters that speak life into you and truth to you and challenge you and encourage you, who help you think like God, not because they are God, but because they hear from God, right? Isn't that such a wonderful reservoir of water? He says, I live my life and realize I need other saints. I realize that, man, uh, isolated and alone, I'm going to die on this thing. Like, I need other people who can 
remind me of these things that I'm realizing that what's at stake, that eternity is real, that heaven and hell is real, that God saved us to himself but also saved us to a people. Listen, it is so important to understand this. It was never in the plan of God to save an individual to just save an individual. Okay? God's plan was always to save a people and save a people. I mean, you see this throughout the Bible. Like, it's not just this individualistic Christianity, right? He's created and is saving a people. After the resurrection, right, you've got Jesus Christ. He appears to a couple hundred. Then he gives his last few words, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He ascends, and then the Holy Spirit descends and gifts us and empowers us and strengthens us, gives us illumination, gives us clarity, gives us discernment. It's so profound. I mean, you've got Peter after the ascension. He gets up and gives one of the not, most un-non-seeker-sensitive sermons you've ever heard. Hey, this Jesus, you killed him. You're going to hell if you don't repent. And 3,000 people are like, I'm repenting, right? They're like, I don't want that. I want to turn to this good, gracious God who saves people. Look what happens in Acts 2 right after that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' teaching, they had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together. This is our temple. It's not a place. It's the people, right? We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are the new temple of God now. Receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God doesn't just create a series of individuals. Man, he creates for himself, this is so beautiful, a people founded on and sustained by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. It's this new identity collectively, not just individually. So you're an oxymoron. You're a walking oxymoron who says, man, I love Jesus, hate his church. You hear that? You hear that all the time, right? Man, I love Jesus, hate his bride. You're a walking oxymoron. You cannot claim to love Jesus and hate his bride. You cannot claim to love God and love his glory and hate gathering with his church. He saved you for that. He saved you to that. So this is why when you read the 52 one another's in the New Testament, they're impossible to be practiced in isolation. You have to be in community for that. You have to be around other sinners for that. How are you going to know if you're humble or you're patient or you're wise or you're encouraging if you've got nobody to exude that with? Right? This is what the single guy always learns when he gets married. Right? I'm super, man, just selfless and I love everybody. I'm patient. Then he gets married and realizes, man, he's just dirty. Right? Spouse walks in, smells like boy in here. What is this? Right? I mean, that's what I realized when I got married. Right? Kristen came home, smells like boy in here. What's that? I didn't even know what it was until I got married. Right, so you've got all these things that are realized, right? Then you have kids. You think you're super good. Then it's just you guys married. Then you have a kid, right? And realize, man, I'm really selfish. I'm really impatient. How do you know how to walk in humility? How do you know to, to forgive if you're not walking with other sinful members of the body? You can't. He purchased you not just to himself. He purchased you to a family. He saved you to a people. That's what's profound about our gathering here, right? It's not just a series of individuals coming in with our own little individual Christianity. It's us collectively saying, hey, we want to long for this. We want to believe this. We want to share in this. We want to help each other in this. And yes, it takes work. Yes, it takes process. Yes, it takes prayer. Yes, it takes walking in grace. Of course it does. 
God's saying and Solomon's saying that's where true beauty is found. Because, listen, there's a difference between um, solitude and isolation. Because I hear this a lot. Listen, um, solitude is reflecting, praying, meditating, healing. Uh, isolation's breaking. Isolation leads to a depressive state, a discontented state. Solitude is right and good for the Christian, but not for so long that you detach from the family of God not to get revived again by his brothers and sisters he purchased for you. So we want solitude, but not isolation. So Solomon's saying, hey, this is really good for you. I mean, that's why he says in here, deep, deep company, right? Good godly company keeps you warm when winter comes. Listen, and winter's coming for all of you, right? It's, come, it's already come for me. It's coming again. It's going to come for some of you who haven't experienced it yet. And you know what you need in the middle of winter? There's safety in numbers. They keep you warm. They share with you the truth. They pray for you. They encourage you. They help you. That's what he's saying. Some of you, you're trying to fight your sin on your own. You're not confessing. You're not acknowledging. You just live in the fake. You have a mask on. You think you're fooling everybody but God, and God says, I gave you brothers and sisters, so James 5, you confess to them, so then you can be healed from that. But you refuse to. And I'm telling you, you're causing the own detriment to your own soul in your joy. No one else is doing that. You are. I tell people all the time, you don't have to walk in the guilt you're walking in. And you confess that today. Like, you're doing that to you. I hate God. He's making me feel guilty. No, you're making you feel guilty. Like, confess that sin, share that sin, walk in the light. Sin loves the darkness. But life is found in the light. Now, why is this so hard, guys? Because, look, I know, I know the stuff I'm saying. No one in here is going, never heard that before. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, community, like, needing other people, never heard that before. Yeah, I, but why is it so hard? He already told you, you're envious. You envy your brother, you envy your sister. At some point, even within the family of God, we've all celebrated the failure of another saint because we love that it make, made us feel better. We love that the platform we sat on made us feel more holy, made us feel more devoted. So we have this sick thing inside of us that actually loves to celebrate it rather than mourn over it and work towards health in it. And so because that's in us, we desperately need Jesus. We need his Holy Spirit. Listen, jealousy, comparison, if there's anything that will derail you from community, it's those things. Those things will really shrivel up community in your life. Um, I often hear people say, um, Pastor Mike, I went to a community group. People just annoyed me. Or I got together with so-and-so, and I don't know, they just kind of like bothered me and said this or this or this. You know what I said? Welcome to the family. Does your own family annoy you? Yes, that's what families do. I mean, listen, I pester my family. It's my spiritual gift. Like, I'm so, I drive my family nuts. Like, that's, that's just what happens in a family, right? So in the family of God, realize you're going to pester each other. You're going to bother each other. You're going to say things that aren't kind, aren't loving. Hopefully you repent of those things. You forgive those things. You walk in grace towards God and what he has for us in the cross of Christ, purchased for us already so we can be a great blessing and witness to the watching world and the watching peoples. But listen, man, welcome to the family and if you're living in the family that has none of that dysfunction man I'm coming to your house I'm packing up bring my sleeping bag and I'm sleeping for at least three weeks to get some sanity right so we all have family issues family dysfunction we need Jesus we need his help and if any of us doesn't say we need that we're lying we're living an illusion we're chasing the wind Solomon says 
So here we're seeing that, man, it's all good that we bear with each other, learn to love and see more of Jesus and his gospel. So what do we do? Um, we take steps. Because some of you guys, you get so overwhelmed. Some of you are like, man, Mike, I was with you when it was like 18 of us. Now it's 300-something. I'm just overwhelmed. Who do I talk to? What, what do I do? Listen, just take steps. You're not going to just wake up one morning all of a sudden stumbling about in this great, holy, godly life. Like, I talk to people so many times that think it's this magic six-week process. You walk on water, secret handshake to get into good community. There's none of that. Like, that doesn't exist. Where do I learn that? That's not how it happens. It's active, progressive, slow baby steps. For some of you, it might just simply be you confess your sin for the first time. For some of you, it might be, man, you write a pastor or elder here for the first time just with some deep, hard pastoral needs. I'm... For some of you, it might be the first time you step out and go, man, I'd, I'd love to just engage with another brother or sister in here and extend a hand or pray with them or ask them. I kind of see them in their marriage, and I'd love to know how they kind of do this in their season of life because I'm heading that direction. Listen, God celebrates steps. I don't know your view of fatherhood, but maybe some of it's been derailed by your own earthly father. But I'll tell you what, the God in the Scriptures celebrates steps. He celebrates his saints to say, man, I'm just going to take one step. I mean, those of us that have kids, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. Um, man, when Jackson started walking, our house went nuts, right? Like none of us were sitting there like going, what a moron, he fell after three steps, right? None of us. We were celebrating, get up, get up. I remember grabbing him, putting him up, just fall over again. I couldn't wait to see him stumble about, got our cameras out, take a video, send him to parents down south, put him on Facebook, Instagram, like we want everyone to know, man, my son is walking, my son's taking steps. My, my son's making movement. Man, let's put him on the table. Hold on the table, buddy, and try to get yourself around it. We'll stay there all day till he gets around the table. Man, God celebrates steps in his kids. He loves seeing his kids go, man, yeah, I don't know, man, that's a really hard text. I've never really done this. Before. I've never really gotten in community before. That, that scares me. Community group, that just sounds like weird and cult-like. I mean, can we find out what that means? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Let's get you towards that. But just take steps. Man, for some of you, church, your entire life has been so program-driven, not relationship-driven. So you thought, like, after a while, man, you've gone from program to program in hopes that that would produce godliness. That doesn't produce godliness. That creates lanes by which you can connect with others relationally. That program is not the design of God. That program is a forum to get you on a pathway towards godliness. Some of us think discipleship ends there, so we run the baseball diamond and get back home thinking, I've been discipled, I'm done, when the Bible says it is a never-ending, exhausting, yet joy-filling, fullness-of-life walk as we walk with not only him, but those who he saved and put us with. So we stay warm when winter comes. So we're like a three-fold strand that's not easily broken. So we've got people fighting sin with us, praying for us, now, here, here's why um, I want to let you also know. I, I've been so encouraged. God and his grace, there have been godly men and women here that have availed themselves and said, hey, if you come across anybody, I'd love to walk with them. And we've been connecting people to those men and women. So there are people here that, that want to walk in discipleship with you. You're going, I don't even know what to do. Just send an email. Send it to the info at Church of Burgundy so you don't even know who, who's getting it, if that's more safe for you. Right? And then we'll get it, write you back, and we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll connect you with somebody, a man or woman, who said, hey, I want to avail myself. I want to walk with younger men and women or older men and women who have a desire to help teach and instruct me. 
And a lot of you guys are doing that organically anyways. But listen, here's the thing I want to say in all this as we're looking at this before we end on verse 13. Um, here's what's so important here in all this. There's two big theological terms in the scriptures, justification and sanctification, right? Justification is just the big theological word for God declares you right before him. He makes you holy based upon not what you do, not upon your merits, not upon your works, but solely upon the work of his son, Jesus Christ, right? So you are redeemed, you are saved, you are forgiven, not by any work of your own, but solely based upon what Christ does on your behalf. Okay, justification puts you on the pathway to sanctification, Sanctification is being made right, more like in the likeness of God, right? So you're not saved just to be forgiven. You're saved so that you can be continually changed and formed and shaped into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But listen, you have to be in justification before you get on the pathway to sanctification, okay? So all this stuff about community and this and that, it's good for everybody, but please don't miss the first step. Because some of you guys need to be, man, I need to be made new. I need to be set free of my sin. Yes, community will teach you those things, but doing that in of itself is not going to make you righteous. It's not going to make you holy. It's not going to let you escape the torments of hell and God's judgment. Only Christ does that. So you need justification first. You need to be declared righteous before God. That's simply saying, I repent of my sin. I belittled your name. You are holy. I am not. Your creator, I'm not. Your judge, I'm not. I'm an idolater. I want to be you, but I can't be. So would you save me from me and put me on the pathway to knowing life, forgiveness of sin, and walking with the God who made me? Okay, and so once you get on that train, then you're good, but don't let sanctification come before justification. Otherwise, your whole life will be, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm getting in community, I'm hanging out with Christians so I can somehow be sin-free. That's not what the scriptures teach. Scriptures are teaching, and Solomon's revealing that this is necessary for, yes, the unregenerate, not so that they can be more sanctified but justified first and for the Christians so they can be sanctified and continue to walk in the likeness of Jesus. So I don't know where you are on that platform, but you need to do some heart work and discern that. Some of you are like, man, I don't know. I don't really hate my sin. I don't really love God or Jesus. So yeah, maybe I'm, I need to deal with justification first. I need to discern if I've ever really repented of sin and turned to him for forgiveness. And others of you are going, man, I love him. I hate my sin. I, I'm just struggling with how to walk and then you need help in your sanctification. And that's where we've got the family of God to keep us warm when winter comes, to help keep us on the path. He ends here with a good summary statement, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Here's what he's simply saying. It's his summary statement. He's basically saying pursue wisdom, and underneath that he's showing you older doesn't equal wiser. Wealthy doesn't equal wiser. Poor doesn't equal wiser. Young doesn't equal wiser. There are older men and women who grow more foolish as they live, and they only get better at living foolishly. There's some people that say, oh, he's really wealthy, he's really successful, he must be wise. No, he might not be wise. He might be foolish with his wealth. There are poor people, oh, he's poor, he's frugal, he's, no, he might be unwise in the ways that he lives poor. So he's laying before us this, this idea of 
There are wealthy fools, poor fools, old fools, young fools. So where in the world do we find wisdom? That's what he's getting you to wonder. He's like, I've lived in the kingdom. I've seen it all. I've seen people come to me from all backgrounds and places, and I'm learning that wisdom is not strictly age or status. That's what he's saying. So where do we find wisdom? Where do we pursue wisdom? We pursue a wise life, not a foolish life, and a wise life is tied to God and tied to his people. So Ecclesiastes is like this bath, right? Scrubbing us from the sentiments and false notions and illusions of meaning so you can discover God and his truth. So if wisdom's not found in wealth, poverty, youth, or age, where does it come from? Wisdom come from, comes from, according to the New Testament, the third member of the Trinitarian God that we worship, the Holy Spirit. The illuminator, the comforter, the helper. That's where wisdom comes from. He illuminates God's word. He helps give you God's thoughts and God's perspective. I want to end with this because I think this is so important to understand. And I think we might be lacking a little bit even in our aggression towards walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's not a third stepchild of some kind. He's an active member of the Trinitarian God, equal with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not God the Father and then Jesus and then, oh, Holy Spirit. Like it's, no, they're all together, right? That's, that's who we have, equal in power, equal in authority, equal in godness. Jesus not only saves you, he illuminates you. This is why John 16, verse 13a, this is where Jesus is about to leave, and he says, hey, unless I leave, you can't have the coming Holy Spirit. What does he say about this? This is John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. He says right before this, and it can't come unless I leave you. It's actually better that I leave you so you can have this illuminator, this comforter, this helper. And so when we are justified, declared right before God, and we move on to sanctification, he gifts us in our salvation this Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1 says he seals you and he adopts you into the family. He guarantees your final salvation and he continues to sustain you and walk with you and help you and guide you as you stumble along this walk called the Christian life life towards glory. But we desperately need to rely on him. He reveals the truth, the true meaning of God, so that God is now at the center of everything that we do. Listen, it's like you got a car with an engine. You take the engine out, what is it? A bunch of movements and noises. The horn might work. Windshield wipers might go like this. You got windows that go up and down. You got seat belts that'll fasten. But what, what, what's removed from it? The very essence that helps it do the very thing it was meant to do. You removed all of its power, right? You took the engine out. It, it's, it's useless. It's lost without the engine. We're a bunch of beeps and movements without the Holy Spirit of God. You're just something that looks kind of funny, that does stuff, says stuff. You're not led by him, empowered by him, walking with him until you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind, give you discernment of truth. You can't actually live and be wired the way you were designed to live and be wired. And that's what he's trying to get us to. Look what Paul says in Colossians 2.8. See, to it, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
He's just reiterating this. He goes, man, don't let anybody move you away from the truth of Christ by worldviews, by values, by morality, by principles, by religion, by philosophies, by theories, by, by systems that men invent because they're all from human wisdom. Listen, I don't need human wisdom to tell me where I come from and where I'm heading to. I need divine wisdom to tell me where I'm from and where I'm heading to. And the human mind doesn't have capability for that because you and I are not God. So God has to say something. This is the irony of philosophy. Now listen, if you took philosophy philosophy, major in philosophy. I love you. I think it's awesome, but I think it's kind of a silly thing in that it's just this pursuit of truth that you never find because if you found it, class would be over, right? You wouldn't have to have a philosophy major anymore. And so now what we have is this pursuit that can be found because God steps into human history and the person and work of Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All truth is bound up on me. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want know what he feels? Look at Jesus. Want to know how he acts, what his character's like? Look at Jesus. And he goes to the cross for our sin and our shame, in our place, dies as our substitute, rises and says, now I'm going to gift you the Holy Spirit so you can walk in this life, be illuminated to this truth so you now know how to view life, view things, view work, view family, view marriage, view friendships, view value, view identity, view everything. Nothing's lost anymore because the engine is in your heart and you're now walking and living and you're sustained in your darkest day because you have him. It's beautiful that Solomon's getting us there without saying it, that he wants our hearts to land there. Paul says, you want to know divine truth? He's echoing Solomon. Go to a divine source. Don't go to a human source. You want to know what I'm like? Don't go to a secular philosopher or psychiatrist or sociologist. Go to me. And he has spoken, and he has revealed himself. I want to end with this. This is why 1 Corinthians says this. Two, verse 12, we have received, this is those of us that are Christians, that love Jesus, that have him, have been saved, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It says human wisdom may have the, the exhibiting ideals and, and seeming influence of brain power, but no ability to grasp its truth. You can't know eternity about heaven, hell, origins, the world of God unless God comes and tells you. You can't, you can't be convicted of your sin unless God convicts you of your sin. You can't know what is true unless God reveals the truth to you. You can't know what it means to walk in a wise way, not a foolish way, unless God tells us. Praise God he has. Then it's on us to walk in belief or unbelief. Either, not, nah, I'm God, don't believe, don't want that. Or, yes, help me. He gave us revelation of Scripture. He gave us revelation of human flesh in Jesus Christ. Listen. The drift of the human soul is always away from God and onto self-reliance. Like, that's the consistent bent of our hearts. God, I don't want you. God, I know better. God, I know how to achieve. I have abilities. I have flair. I have charisma. I'm going to do this thing in life, and I don't need you. I'm going to rely on myself, not rely on you. And what happens? We think we figured out the matrix of life. We figured out the, the dogma of life, the philosophy of life. All the while, that leads us nowhere. 
And listen, this is why you desperately need him because all those things that you do, if they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit, who cares? It's all lost. Like it doesn't, this is why this morning I'm literally in there with just scatterbrain because I'm already ADD, but I got ADHDAB or something, right? I'm, I'm back there like trying to study and look at my notes and I'm telling you my mind's everywhere. I'm like literally playing, praying against the enemy, praying against authorities. I'm literally finishing off some last sentences of my sermon because I'm still like just struggling with, with what God wants to say. And I'm telling you, man, I'm begging God in there. Why am I appealing to the Holy Spirit to do anything? Because I know it doesn't matter if I have oratory gifts or whatever, nothing's gonna happen in here unless the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, here you go. There's fire to the kindling now. Wow, now people are walking in newness of life. I didn't do anything. I just said something. There's no power in my words. There's power in the Holy Spirit who takes the words and makes something new out of that which is dead. So we have got to remember, if you're looking for the truth, if you're struggling in sin, you have to plead, beg, ask God to give you help. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Walk with other saints. Let them keep you warm. We need the community and we need God and we need his helper, the Holy Spirit. Might we ask him to help us in this? Let's go to him together. Before we observe the table, before we sing, before we respond in glad worship to God, where is it that you need wisdom? Because the scriptures will constantly say, James 1, ask for wisdom. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom with others. Where is it that you need wisdom this morning? For some of you, it might be numbness to sin that you don't think is a big deal. Maybe it's even pleading with God, God, show me the the reality of me in light of who you are. Others of you, it might be, man, I'm just, I'm stepping into this for the first, I, I don't know, half this stuff makes sense, half of it doesn't, I just need understanding. Maybe it's, God, would you reveal yourself to me? God, if you're real, God, if you exist, God, if you are who you say you are in this book that I'm hearing talked about, would you make yourself known to me? Would you illuminate my mind? Some of you, it's areas where you're discontent. Maybe it's God revealed to me where I have discontentment and I am coveting even if I don't realize I am. God, protect me from the slavery of envy. Maybe some of you, it's wisdom in relationships and the walk of sanctification. God, help me in fighting this particular sin or walking with this brother or sister. Help me know what's helpful. Help me know what's wise. Maybe some of you, it's, I, I have never turned to Christ for salvation. I've never embraced him as my hope. I've never embraced him as Savior, King, Lord, Redeemer, I've been trusting in my own merits, my own works, my own achievements. My value is solely in what I do and who I have and what I've become. Ask him to be kind to you this morning, to show you mercy this morning, to receive justification from God, to be declared righteous before God by Christ's work alone so that you can get on the pathway towards becoming more like his son.
God, thank you for these saints. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. I know that many of them have been an agent of grace to me personally. God, thank you that you have kept me by your power through your people. Father, would you help us when we need help? Would you give us courage when we need courage? Give us confession when we need confession. And God, as we come to the table and celebrate your broken body and shed blood that did not just save us, but gave us illumination to the truth of who you are, God, might we rejoice in that, that we see with eyes that are clear and hear with ears that are clear. Thank you for giving us spiritual sight and spiritual hearing. Father, keep us on the path towards glory by your grip and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.